Well, welcome to Michael and us. I'm Will Sloan here as always with Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. The boys are here for another ep. We're about to crack open. Crack open a cold one of Coke Zero. Yeah, beverage of choice for the Michael and us podcast. Uh, I want to show Luke a clip that I think you'll find interesting just to show you what some of the real problems are. Uh, Obviously, you recognize the man in the clip. (laughs) One of the most disturbing problems in our world today is human trafficking, (laughs) and particularly the trafficking of children. Our future is our children. Now, the first step in eradicating this crime is awareness. (laughs) Go see Sound of Freedom. (laughs) <laughs> Man, uh, isn't he great I, I was about, i was about to say i didn't have QAnon mel gibson on my bingo card this year but it's like yes i did of course i did nothing's ever been more inevitable there was a minor controversy because trump you remember trump uh he was at a ufc fight <laughs> uh over the weekend and uh, mel gibson was there mark Wahlberg was there uh, mr guy fieri was there and they all they the all boys. they all exchanged pleasantries with trump and i saw jack white was on instagram being like how dare these people normalize the fascist racist which yes i agree officially we're on board officially with, but... i'm on board with but then it's also like wait a minute you're telling you're telling me mel gibson mel gibson this changes everything <laughs> well, I did, thought did I jack wait i mean let's give him like let's be fair did he actually use the word like normalize yeah i think he did. okay because the thing about that right is like yeah i mean obviously if i'm on a team here it's it's jack white of course. obviously but it's yeah. like that whole shtick of being like don't normalize donald trump i mean i think like after about like june of 2015 and even you could argue like going back before that Donald Trump there's nothing more normal than Donald Trump he was on NBC it's yeah. like Donald Trump the normalization is already complete to say that after he's literally been the president regarding Mel Gibson I have a elephantine memory of Mel Gibson controversies and right after the the famous one the uh you know him getting pulled over in Florida and saying some some interesting Cer- co- certain epithets some interesting comments about who caused wars uh a couple of months later he had a movie to promote Apocalypto and I remember there was one appearance that he made where he was like you know some of the some of the fear-mongering in the movie kind of reminds me of bush and his boys interesting so he at the time he was trying to be kind of like hey look at look i (laughs) i'll triangulate those epithets a little bit yeah yeah but that movie that he was plugging in that clip sound of freedom actually stars jim caviezel who played jesus in the passion of the christ and who is you know a a very shall we say right of center figure and it's (laughs) it's based on a true story action movie about a figure named timothy ballard who runs a group called operation underground railroad that doesn't set off any alarm bells (laughs) he was a former special forces guy who was disgruntled by government bureaucracy (laughs) and stuff so he started his own kind of vigilante organization to stop human trafficking particularly the trafficking of minors Mm. officially you know all over the world the experts if you will regard him as at best a nuisance and at at worst (laughs) you know somebody who just runs roughshod over people's rights you know traumatized is the people he attempts to protect that sort of thing anyway he's the subject of this new action movie that in its first week made 40 million dollars mm-hmm. it's like a, a, a pretty big hit like this is in theaters right this now. is in theaters right now yeah. it's funny though in some circles you see like the outrage over a movie like this now i guess on some objective level it is scary that a sort of QAnon adjacent movie well because it, it, it used to be like okay clint eastwood's gonna make a film about chris kyle and now it's like you know the, the winds of conservatism have shifted such that it's like yeah we're just doing like full-on QAnon movie yeah and it's playing in theaters and it's making 40 million dollars <laughs> in its first week so so that hell yeah free them all children yeah that uh <laughs> all, all, all that 
as a given is not great. But you see a certain kind of uh, impotent liberal response to this, where it's like, what, what, what is, what is go? How can this be? How can it? How can this be? And when you've had so much sex trafficking just out in the open over the last ten years, it's like, well, you're gonna get movies like this. When people see, you know, Jeffrey Epstein just like hang himself, quote unquote, it's going to translate into a movie like this being made by people you don't like coming at it from the wrong angle. That's just a consequence of having a society where you've allowed sex trafficking at that level. Well, to you know, th- I mean, this is probably this is a good moment to offer you, I think, one of probably my most galaxy brain takes, which I which I which I stand by. I mean, I, I mean this like mostly seriously, but I feel like, you know, you don't you wouldn't get things like Infowars or at least they wouldn't have the same potency and influence if the like nominally reform-minded like wing of politics was less shitty. I mean, when the supposedly progressive, like liberal forces in, you know, I guess we'll just limit it to American politics here, when they basically have the affect of like a non-publicly traded corporation that does like a little bit of charity work on the side, and when like they basically preclude, you know, the language of like dissent and opposition and like their whole shtick is about, you know, containing rage instead of channeling it, labeling all forms of anger, you know, Trump and Bernie Sanders are the same thing because they're both angry or whatever when there's an ambient wisdom that society is dysfunctional and fucked up which you know even if people aren't able to articulate those feelings in a way that's precise and often are articulating that in like a way that is not only not productive but counterproductive and sometimes dangerous that energy has to go somewhere and if it doesn't have a constructive place to go uh it's you know (laughs) it's going over to alex jones so he can you know monetize it to sell his sugar pills or whatever what is your name? Napoleon. Has the course of my life just changed? Napoleon. Why well, a movie thing I wanted to discuss, Will. Uh, well, first... thanks. I'm kind of the film guy. Let's, <laughs> let's hear about it. Well, I was just wondering if you'd seen just kind of idly, like, have you seen the Ridley Scott Napoleon trailer? Did you watch it yesterday? You know, I didn't watch the trailer. I mean, obviously, I saw people posting it and sharing it. I didn't watch the trailer because I'm just not a fan of Ridley Scott. I don't care for him. He's made several movies that are very good and a lot of movies that I can just take or leave. And by the way, folks, if you're listening and you're a Ridley Scott fan, I see you. I hear you. I value you. I like several of his movies, too. I don't want you people in the replies saying, don't "Don't you like anything? I don't fully understand this. I've encountered this, you know, this film Twitter take before. And I'm not saying that to, like, defend the honor of Ridley Scott. I just I don't really understand. And like, I, I feel like there's something I'm missing. I don't really understand, like, why get worked up about whether because I don't feel I'm, I'm, I don't feel strongly about Ridley Scott. I think, you know, I like Alien. I like yeah, no, a couple too. other things that he's done. But it's okay, like I don't, th- this thing, I feel like I'm not getting is there up. is there some constituency of people out there who are like Ridley Scott's a great auteur and you should worship him? Is that a thing? I felt that strongly when the Napoleon trailer came out. But maybe but maybe we're just talking about different straw men here because I don't get worked up about Ridley Scott either. I have the same relationship with him as you do. I think Blade Runner, Alien, I like The Duelists a lot as well. I haven't seen The Last Duel. I hear it's good. Oh, yeah, it's fun. It's uh, but then, you know, you look a little deeper in the filmography, and there are just a lot of movies. What, what separates the <laughs> people who I really like from the people I can leave is when you get to the mid-tier, is there something in there that's speaking to me? And I see a lot of kind of workmanlike, right. rather heavy-footed movies, you know? A lot of lugubrious stuff like, I don't know, Russell Crowe Robin Hood or that fucking movie we watched a few weeks ago uh, with Jeff Bridges, you know, you, where we oh, go. Yeah. 
yeah, one. Yeah, the, the speaking of QAnon movies. What was that called again? Uh, White Squall. White yeah. Squall. Yeah, I mean, that's one of those things where it's like, I'm saying this more and more these days, but the podcast has so pickled my brain that I can't, like, I enjoyed that. And it's like, obviously, it's not a good movie, but it's like, if I enjoyed it, maybe it is a good movie. I don't know. Oh, I like The Counselor. <laughs> I like his Cormac McCarthy movie, too. So there, folks, I guess maybe I am a fan of Ridley Scott. Okay, well, I was not putting the question to you to prompt, you know, an extended discourse on the the merits of Ridley Scott. I just thought as a film guy, you would have seen the trailer and I didn't really have much to say about it except that... Well, I hear Napoleon's really bad actually. <laughs> okay, well, we're, we're going to come to that in a second. <laughs> uh, yeah, I got I got some sights to show you there. But uh, yeah, I mean, the trailer, the first thing I thought about it was, oh, this doesn't look like what Stanley Kubrick's vision for Napoleon uh, would have been. Then I realized this is actually like a completely separate thing. Spielberg is doing a TV show, I guess for HBO, where he's ostensibly adapting, you know, Kubrick's famously unfinished Napoleon project. I'm a little more excited for that project. I mean, I, I think if you want to like tell the story of Napoleon, you kind of needs like a long form treatment. Having said that, my reaction to the trailer is funny. I had two parallel reactions. One was a bunch of like very pedantic intellectual reactions to it. But then those were tempered by like, well, of course, I'm going to see this. It looks awesome. <laughs> so pedantic things. If you had seen it, Will, you would have heard the musical choice is extremely weird. It's this cover of Radiohead's The National Anthem, which is so like, it's very, it was very like Baz Luhrmann-y. Like you're seeing footage from like what's clearly the movie recreating, you know, when Napoleon directed the French siege at Toulon. But then it's a cover of The National Anthem. I mean, that's kind of the norm. I remember the first time. I like it. I remember the first time somebody did that. Well, not the first time, but the kind of trend-setting example was A Knight's Tale with Heath Ledger. Yeah, right, right. That had them doing We Will Rock You. Yeah, okay, but... So but also, I, have you seen uh, Sophia Coppola's Marie Antoinette? Yes. I think it makes some clever use of well, modern Well, I music. actually think both of those... I mean, I haven't seen A Knight's Tale since I was, you know, 14 or whatever, but it's like, I actually think both of those examples, to me, those are kind of the exceptions because I feel like the movies are quite self-aware about them and it is sort of tongue-in-cheek and it's used a comedic effect. I don't know. I feel like, for me, it just... Whenever, like, does anything like that like all my least favorite parts of the elvis movie were like him fusing like doja cat with elvis yeah i can't i couldn't couldn't stand i mean to offer a sort of guarded and qualified defense of ridley scott we got got the andy warhol guy and uh and baz lerman two filmmakers who i don't have any particular affection (laughs) for the argument can be made that they're taking these rather ossified icons and trying to make them live again the scene in elvis that i thought was quite effective was the first time you see elvis on stage and he's doing the hip swinging and like lerman pumps the style up to past the spinal tap 11 to be like okay you've heard that the elvis hip swinging was a big deal this is how big a fucking deal it is we're gonna make you fucking feel it yeah and i can imagine using sort of contemporary music as making it come alive communicating a feeling to a contemporary audience i like the your phrase of it your phrasing of it that you can imagine it so you're not actually saying it does that you're just like <laughs> well i think Sofia coppola did it in marie antoinette mm. i think for example when she used i like candy in that montage uh-huh. i think it did communicate it well i i want candy i want candy that's right, <laughs> right, right. sorry I, I... Yeah, I i've only seen that movie once and i had a kind of a mixed reaction to it because when the movie ended maybe we've already talked about this i can't remember we've done we've like, talked about every opinion we have yeah we've done we've done like over 400 episodes at this point folks so forgive us if if this is treading familiar ground but when that movie ended i was really surprised because it just ends with them leaving versailles and i was like okay so act three is about to begin and then i realized it was the end of the movie and i was kind of like well this is really stupid because the whole movie 
movie is just sort of Marie Antoinette living this decadent lifestyle in Versailles, and she's completely unaware of everything that's going on. The movie is not political at all, except there's like one scene where there's some some, some rowdy commoners, and they're like violating the premises or whatever. But then I kind of came around to it. I was kind of like, well, I don't know, maybe maybe this is why the movie's effective. Maybe that's what it's doing. It actually is self-consciously about the very narrow perspective of of like the French aristocracy. It's so apolitical, it becomes political. Yeah, so I actually think I kind of like that movie. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, sorry. (laughs) So Napoleon. Spending more time on this than I was planning, but the other thing in the Napoleon trailer, which I'm just kind of like, I I don't really know what to do with this, is is like, how does Joaquin Phoenix play Napoleon? Like, it looks like he plays him right from the, like when Napoleon is like still on Corsica, when he went to the the military school in in France, wherever that was, it what, it's just like 50-year-old Joaquin Phoenix? Joaquin Phoenix might be as old or older than Napoleon was when he died on St. Helena. And I just think that's kind of weird. Like, there can't be like a younger actor to play Napoleon. Or, well, the trend these days is to digitally de-age him a little bit. See, that I don't like. It's like, just find me a young actor who can, like, there's got to be a young actor out there. Obviously, Joaquin Phoenix, I mean, one of the best to ever do it. But it's like, is he good enough that he can actually play like a teenage Napoleon Bonaparte? I'm not sure. Only time will tell. <laughs> now, now, Luke, I've heard that Napoleon's a bad guy. Okay. Now, this is news right. to me. All right. So, you know, there are two different takes this week, both prompted by, you know, movies that are in the discourse. And yet, this one I absolutely loved. Uh, Napoleon Bonaparte was a terrible person. This is this is from Twitter, obviously. He was a tyrant. He betrayed every ideal he ever claimed to stand for. Uh, he was a shameless pathological liar who killed millions of people for his own insatiable vanity. He's literally one of the worst people in history. And, you know, I think this is a really important point. And that's why I, you know, after I saw that, you know, I wasn't aware of any of this. I thought I knew Napoleon. I went, I unfollowed him. And I'm bringing this up as a public service announcement because it's really important to hold people accountable, even, and I would argue, especially when there are faves. I mean, that poor guy, that was some history professor. That was somebody who's like probably really immersed in Napoleon. And so Napoleon, I mean, for most of us have a pretty normal relationship with Napoleon, which is like, yeah, we, we kind of get the general deal. I liked his early work better. Yeah. But if you're really if you're really an expert and you're immersed in this stuff, that's who a trailer like this is designed to annoy. I don't know. I think that that kind of reading is like, you're really that troubled by something that's about a historical figure who's like a very complicated and very contradictory figure, but who regardless had a tremendous impact on the world like you really think it's sort of beyond the pale to make a movie about napoleon well depiction doesn't equal endorsement that's what i say i don't know whatever anyway uh there's this other tweet about uh this one was inspired by oppenheimer and I'm a big fan of this one as well. That movie, Barbie. Hey, uh, has anyone suggested what if Barbie and Oppenheimer were a double feature? These two movies that aren't even out yet, where every possible discourse subject has been completely strip mined, like <laughs> save something for when they're viewable. Yeah, th- this this take, I mean, I don't know, credit to this person. This is some serious take entrepreneurship going on here. The movie Oppenheimer will be releasing soon, I'm sure to critical acclaim. Just a reminder that to secure the uranium for the bomb America America went on a bloody rampage in Congo that would permanently destabilize the country and ultimately claim the lives of over 100,000 Congolese. So, folks, if you're going to see Oppenheimer, you know, have a good time. But just remember that technology that burned hundreds of thousands of Japanese people to a crisp and to this day threatens to annihilate us all. It wasn't ethically sourced. OK, <laughs> nuclear weapons canceled. Well, folks, you can't spell bullshit without us. We are returning to Penn and Teller Bullshit, the hit Showtime TV show, and we're doing it because the superdelegate patron tier has requested it. Yes, 
our flawed democracy has led a plurality a uh what's what's no, not a majority is we, that we what a plurality, to, yeah, plurality is yeah need, yeah sorry you're asking me because i'm the politics guy on the <laughs> podcast <laughs> um, <laughs> uh yeah i think we need to introduce an electoral college within the superdelegates because yeah it, it's there's still an excess of democracy this one is brutal although who, who can be the superdelegate to the superdelegates <laughs> is what i want to yeah, say yeah. no 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 taylor i'm not taking pie from you i'm giving pie to me. Mm, I don't have any more pie, and you do. So you don't understand, Teller. I'm not taking pie from you. I'm giving pie to me. Thanks for cutting that piece. Mm. Now, <clears throat> neither one of us has any pie. So we'll find someone else who has pie. We won't take the pie from them. We'll give it to us. Now, where does Bill Gates live? So we had sometime during the lockdown, like 2020, we did an episode on Penn and Teller bullshit. And the thing about it is it is both a very rich vein. There are a lot of episodes, but it's also a very narrow vein because once you see one, you've seen them all. They all follow <laughs> the same structure. They all have the same characters just under different guises. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, all of us of a certain age can recall a sort of room temperature libertarianism that was ambient in the fringes of the cultural mainstream circa 2000. And this is like, well, what if that was a show? A little background. Penn and Teller, you know them, you love them. The the bad boys of magic, because they were magicians who violated the magic code. They revealed how the tricks were done. And this is because they may be funny, but they're they're not foolish. Just as they are with religion or politics, they will allow for no subterfuge. That's right. If, if you're listening and you happen to be an unsubstantiated claim or, or cultural piety, uh, prepare to meet a witty repost at the behest of these two gentlemen who do not suffer hokum gently. There are a lot of people who would see that rabbit be pulled out of the hat and say, well, clearly that must have been magic. And they were here to tell you no. That there were flim-flam men, con artists on the stage who would trick you just as there are in government, just as there are at the pulpit. But their powers of rhetoric and intellect couldn't be limited to magic. They expanded as the 2000s went on to political commentary. And we should be fair to Penn Jillette, one of the most visible American libertarians. Uh, he's had a recent... Um, Has he gone lib? Is he like a never Trump guy or something? Yeah, so I'm, I'm just going to read from Wikipedia because I'm lazy. <laughs> In 2020, Gillette distanced himself from aspects of libertarianism, particularly surrounding COVID-19. Interesting. In an interview with Big Think, he said... A lot of the illusions that I held dear, rugged individualism, individual freedoms are coming back to bite us in the ass. (laughs) He went on to elaborate. It seems like getting rid of the gatekeepers gave us Trump as president and in the same breath, in the same wind, gave us not wearing masks and maybe gave us a huge, unpleasant amount of overt racism. So in the 2020 presidential election, he endorsed Andrew Yang in the Democratic primary. Yes. And uh, he voted for Joe Biden. So that's where he is right now. (laughs) I love the phrasing there that he hasn't just gone lib. It's like a particular type of like very like elitist lib where it's like we got rid of the gatekeepers. People need discipline. They need to be kept in line. Like the elites didn't give us Trump, but the rabid masses did. Now say what you will about Penn Jillette. I didn't see any of you picking Al Goldstein off the street when he was homeless and paying for his apartment, okay? I guess you, yeah, you, for that, I didn't think of that, but for for that reason, you probably would have a warm attachment. I, I have, like there's 5% of me that looks at Penn Jillette and says, well, you know, 
you saved Al Goldstein's life and, and you lived your politics. And, uh, you know, I don't see I don't see other libertarians doing that. So I have to give him props for that. You know, this is a man who's a was a serious ideological libertarian who you know, you'd hear interviews with him and he would say things like the government shouldn't be helping people. We have means should be helping people. And right. it seems that he did that uh-huh. in his life. So he deserves props for that. <laughs> What he doesn't deserve props for is everything else in his life and career. <laughs> yeah, for any episode of this show, which was, I mean, I'm very mad at the superdelegates for making us watch their four specific episodes. But then again, it's like, if you listen to this week's Patreon episode, Will actually subjected me to what I think is not only the worst piece of content we've ever watched for the show, but pr- possibly wow. the worst piece of content ever made. Okay, well, listen, I'll just spoil the surprise. Uh, Patreon.com slash Michael and us. This week, Luke's a huge Pink Floyd fan. <laughs> You've all heard that. You've all heard him talk about Pink Floyd recently. I thought it was important that Luke watch the most important piece of Pink Floyd content, which is <laughs> the Nostalgia Critic review of The Wall. Oh, my God. Right? folks folks so patreon.com slash michael and us the whole nostalgia critic channel awesome thing has it kind of passed me by but when we did our episode on it with friend of the show alex ross a while back i mean thousands of you seem to know all about this and (laughs) this random piece of like youtube sub detritus got us probably more subs than we'd got all year for an episode so patreon.com slash michael and us for that and also the recent non-ironic pink floyd content that i'm quite proud of now getting back to uh fuck that shit by the way (laughs) uh getting back to penn and teller bullshit most episodes follow the same format where like it introduces you know you have to think a little differently to like this show it'll introduce something that you know most reasonable people would say well that sounds like a good thing like uh, whether it be handicapped parking or uh, and and they'll say you think this is good well actually it's bullshit and then there will be several characters who are introduced there will always be one really annoying do-gooder and that's the villain of the piece yeah if it's an episode about for example reparations there's a designated community member trademark you know who has the libertarian position let, and let, the one in the reparations yeah. episode he was pretty special we'll come back to him <laughs> yeah there, there's always the contrary and it's like but what's this a black person who doesn't want reparations and then there's always I mean, in that case, there will always be the one who's like the one who does want reparations, who is basically Farrakhan. That's how they're positioned. Yeah, there's there's like liberal do-gooder. There's somebody who's kind of situated as as an overzealous progressive ideologue who represents the true excesses of the position. And, and then, and by the way, that progressive ideologue is always some kind of a carpetbagger figure. It's always somebody who isn't actually affected by this. They're just a, yeah. a busybody who should mind their own business. But what they're actually doing is going around with their little cell phone camera harassing businesses that aren't conforming to the bylaws right and then act three of every single one of these episodes is just like the same bullshit cookie cutter libertarian argument where guess what everything comes back down to property rights yeah yeah exactly (laughs) that's that's it oh and there's always one extra character who is an expert from the cato institute or (laughs) yeah the manhattan some some real some real outsider wisdom from like some some astroturf thing funded by the Koch brothers but this this expert who's sitting in front of a bookshelf thinks the epa's report is bullshit yeah 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 yeah. so let's begin with episode uh, uh, season six episode three there one on nasa now this adds a little bit of texture to the typical formula because penn and teller who normally don't have much trust 
talk for government agencies, kind of like NASA. You know, they think space exploration is cool. They think it's really cool that we made it to the moon. But the problem is NASA has become overburdened with bureaucracy. You saw the Columbia mission. You saw the Challenger mission. NASA can't be trusted to do a safe mission to Mars because there's too much bureaucracy. There's also some limper critiques this episode introduces. And honestly, this was the weirdest episode we'd watched. And I, I think I have an explanation for that, which I'll offer in a minute. But they don't really come at NASA with the sort of ideological zeal that one expects of uh, you know, a Penn and Teller bullshit episode. Some of the limper things they introduce uh, include when Penn Gillette says something like, uh, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs say NASA inspired them, but is it still inspiring our kids today? So it's, it's kind of just stuff like that. It's like once this was a, a great public enterprise, it helped us outshine communism or whatever, but it's it's become sort of flaccid because of, yeah, bureaucracy or whatever. It's, it's very boring. Well, also, they admit to some ideological contradiction when at one point Penn says, we think it's just plain wrong to force taxpayers to pay for optional stuff. By the way, I'm sure we could unpack what his idea of optional stuff is. But among other things, he considers NASA optional. But dang Nabbit, it's cool. Space exploration and astronauts, they're they're heroes. You know, like that stuff's cool. We like that. So what can we do? And I'm such an idiot that I didn't see this coming because for the first two thirds of the episode, I kept not being quite sure what his critique of NASA was exactly. And of course, when Richard Branson shows up, oh, you think this should become the private sector. I get it. Yeah, I mean, this episode was also less, I mean, the show is not very rigorous, which I think is one of the problems. I think if you're going to do this, instead of just having random cranks, like maybe doing some research and having, you know, more actual, they don't offer a lot of evidence or data. I feel like Gillette kind of considers himself above that. Well, he uses data when it suits him. Yeah, kind of, but I feel like there's not a lot of that. And in this one, I mean, the whole argument swings on this kind of just totally unexamined axiom that the private sector is more efficient and government is cumbersome and bureaucratic. And I think that's an especially strange argument to make vis-a-vis anything that has to do with scientific research, because the thing about private research is, you know, if you're if you're a corporation and you're investing in research, which like you name it, pharmaceutical companies, whoever, like the argument during COVID for don't open up patent law or whatever, oh, it'll destroy their incentive for doing investment in, in research. And, you know, these companies don't, that's not how they make their money. They invest a very small amount in research. They literally make their money because of the property rights that someone like Pendulette cherishes, where there's a totally generic drug that would be easy to mass produce, and there's a wide social need for it, and then they make some minor modification to it, and they slap a patent on it, and then they jack the prices up. So, you know, the free market strikes again. But I mean, the private sector or property rights argument is a really weird one to make vis-a-vis anything concerned with scientific research, because the thing about public research is, in theory anyway, it's open-ended. So, you know, if you're Oxford University, there's no disincentive to, like, if researchers at MIT or something are working on the same thing, you're going to pool your resources, you're going to share research. If you're a company and there's another company doing the same thing, you're not going to do that because you want the patent. The incentive driving the whole thing is profit. And so, yeah, it's it's a really strange argument to make vis-a-vis all kinds of things, but especially any kind of R&D related stuff. But then I lost even more respect for this episode when it didn't even really like lean into that because at the end, it turns out that Pendulette has so much ingrained generation 
generational nostalgia for NASA that he's just like, oh, actually, science is pretty cool. Uh, so we should allow NASA to just keep doing stuff, but it should partner with the private sector, which can like launch rockets more cheaply or something. And, and I guess, yeah, do things more uh, safely. This episode, by the way, aired in 2008. And, you know, it's and it, it's it, gone pretty well since then. Hasn't yeah, it? no, no uh, private rockets have ever blown up. <laughs> <laughs> so season one, episode five, there's a segment on secondhand smoke. Yeah. So this one, Will's going to have to be our guide here because uh, I was not able to uh, watch this one. And, you know, I feel kind of left out. I'm sure I missed some pretty enlightening stuff. Well, it opens in New York, the greatest city in the world, after they've just passed a law banning smoking in restaurants and bars. And look, do I really need to explain what happens in this one? Well, yeah, kind of, because how on earth do you argue that like this uh, smoking in public places isn't bad? Well, well, is uh, it just, is it literally, is it actually as boring as the property rights arguing about like, well, if you don't want there to be smoke, well, don't patronize this well, establishment. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's what it is. I mean, the villain of the piece is a guy named Joe Turner who made his fortune on Wall Street and then wanted to do good for society. And he started reading up on things that were bad and uh, cancer, you know, a thing that I think we can all agree was bad. <laughs> he read up and he, he found out, he found out about bad. cancer. <laughs> yeah. So he became a crusader against secondhand smoke. Penn and Teller are skeptical that secondhand smoke is really a killer. They say that all of the claims that it's harmful come from a discredited EPA survey. And and they, and they probably just don't like that because it's the EPA, right? That Which is the federal government, which is axiomatically bad. Yeah, but I mean, what it really comes down to is all of these bar and restaurant owners who uh, actually loved having smokers in and, well, this is infringing on their rights. And uh, if, if you don't like smoking, then, uh, you know, there are a lot of things I don't like too. you know, suck it up. Maybe I don't like the music that's playing in the restaurant. <laughs> I didn't watch this episode, but I, d I did look up the uh, reception and criticism around the show. And this episode actually figures prominently. I I'm no scientist, but the suggestion that secondhand smoke is basically harmless. I thought I needed to see a few more sources on that than the guy from the Cato Institute. Quote, uh, at the amazing meeting three, Penn and Teller were asked about the evidence for their secondhand smoke episode being faulty. Penn Gillette, with Teller sitting his side, said, The new study that came out um, uh, uh, out of England just recently actually seems to have more stuff about it. What we talked about during the show was where the stuff was there. And what you're talking about really is only about three lines of the show where I believe we were absolutely, uh, no, where I believe it's very likely we were wrong now. Uh, the rest of the show was about outlawing it and if the government should be involved in stopping secondhand smoke, which I still stand behind 100%. But the research, a lot of the information you sent was very, very new. Some of it was older and the stuff that was older was less good. Uh, I, but I think ultimately right now as I sit here, there probably is uh, danger in secondhand smoke. Wow, who's the bullshit now, huh, Pam? He went on to say that this was a small portion of the program and there main I point don't know about that. was their opposition to outlawing smoking in privately owned businesses. Well, I do agree that that's his main point. I do agree that that's what he cares about the most. Yeah, I mean, when Will said off the top that every one of these is the same, that's really not ex an exaggeration because the thing about libertarianism is it really has one essential premise, which is the idea that property rights are essentially pre-political. 
So they precede the existence of the state in some way. They precede any mechanisms that you know society sets up to regulate itself, all of which are by definition, for that reason, sort of impositions or encumbrances. There's another episode uh, that we watched. I think it was the handicapped parking one, which maybe we'll come to next, where Gillette says something like, with every law that's introduced, a little bit of our freedom is taken away. Yeah, I mean, in that episode, the freedom to not make it to the second floor of an apartment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he, in, the, in that, he's partaking in what Isaiah Berlin once called uh, negative liberty. Isaiah Berlin had a famous essay, which not going to get into it too much here. There's a lot, you know, still a lot of debate around it. But broadly speaking, the concepts can be useful. He introduced the idea of negative versus positive liberty. You know, negative liberty is best understood as sort of the absence of something. So it's the freedom that exists because there isn't an obstacle in your way. And the thing with libertarians is they basically stop at that. That's their entire understanding of everything. But I mean, just to go back to that thing that Gillette said about like every law that's introduced takes away a little bit of our freedom. There's no sense in that, that law can actually enhance human freedom in all kinds of areas. So many of the uh, bullshit that they take on is just innocuous equity measures and things like that, which I think pretty indisputably do enhance the freedom of people who use them. But when your entire conception of politics is premised on the idea that property rights happen before politics, which, you know, I think, among other things, is just an incorrect idea, doesn't stand up to scrutiny. It's always just going to come back to this. And, you know, it leads them in some pretty bizarre and, uh, you know, intellectually indefensible places. So, you know, to turn to the handicapped parking episode. That would be season five, episode seven. That one, you know, one of their experts is this guy who's disabled, but he's against all kind of equity, you know, measures for disabled people. He's against the American Disabilities Act. Like he basically has a pull up your pants argument from it. He's like, I know myself. If I had been born after that act had existed, I wouldn't have like... I wouldn't have pulled myself up. I wouldn't be the successful person I was. I am today. I, I would have gone on the dole. Because an act <laughs> like that, it, it stigmatizes disabled people further. That's the implication. It, it ingrains in them the idea that they're weak and need accommodation. Yeah, so that's a type of argument that basically every episode of this show seems to have. But so there's a scene in that episode where it's either that guy or maybe it's just Pendulette himself are outside of a business and they're like, this business has a handicapped spot. You know, that's that, and that's great, you know, but but why should they have a gun to their head that says, you know, they have to have a handicapped spot? And this is where I would intervene to say, okay, imagine the exact same argument, except it's about that business's right to serve or not serve, you know, people of a certain racial background or something like that, which is literally an argument that some libertarians will make. You know, you know some people for whom everything begins and ends with property rights will be like, oh, yeah, no, that's not discrimination. That's actually freedom. The handicapped parking episode both says that the American Disabilities Act was overreach because it's forcing accommodation on private property. But then it also it also has a kind of attitude towards disability activists along the lines of, listen, you got everything you want in the ADA. Uh, what more do you want? Like, quit complaining. There are moments like that in the show that I feel like hint at one of the reasons for, I don't know, the, the popularity, at least, of this style of sort of mid-2000s, you know, right-leaning contrarianism 
racism that's, you know, yeah, slapping down the bullshit, whatever. I mean, you find this in all of like the worst episodes of South Park as well, where the actual grievance that's animating this kind of thing is just certain people are annoyed by any kind of do-gooderism, any act of sort of public conscientiousness or something they actually just find very irritating and they just like don't like to hear complaining. Well, to them, it's not conscientiousness. It's hectoring. Right. I mean, there's a woman in this handicapped parking episode where she sort of made it her mission to find any car that's parked in a handicapped parking spot without the proper accreditation and take a picture of it and alert the authorities. And she's not disabled herself, but she has a daughter who is. Right. And there's there's actually a further instance of overreach in this episode that I've forgotten where it's really, it's, it's so kind of absurd that they included this, but there's some town in some part of California they go to where the story they tell is that, you know, one of these, one of these do-gooder disability lawyers who pretends to be a do-gooder and is actually a bully spent two days in this town and hit 60 different businesses with separate lawsuits saying that they weren't accessible. And then they sort of go to certain business and they'll be like, oh, but there's a ramp right here. And it's like, this has nothing to do with disability rights. This is just like, if the story's true and it doesn't even seem like the court actually upheld these claims or some certain businesses settled and certain other businesses, you know, refused to. But I mean, if the account they're giving is accurate, this is just the story of a sort of opportunistic litigious person. It's got nothing to do with the actual subject matter of the episode. In the moral universe of this show, everyone is basically fine with things the way they are. And there's a small very vocal cadre of either whiners and complainers or opportunists. Yeah, so let's uh, let's talk about the reparations episode. Yes, please. Um, so this one, you know, if you if you okay, if you, um, uh, just a bit of phraseology in Penn's intro. <laughs> Usually he says, you know, such and such a subject is bullshit, but in this one he says reparations can be bullshit, which is a just an interesting amendment to his normal introduction. Yeah, Will, Will picked up on this right from the beginning, and it turned out to be very perceptive because basically this episode comes out on the side of reparations for Japanese Americans who were interned during the Second World War by the Roosevelt administration and who had their you know property damaged or confiscated. But then it's, yeah, it's against reparations for slavery, reparations for indigenous people. And really, it seems like the, the distinction that Penn Jillette makes here is kind of a twofold one. I mean, he's able to get on board with the reparations that were paid out to some Japanese Americans, I think in uh, circa 1990, because it's in the sufficiently recent past that it's sort of, you know, directly quantifiable. You can find the specific people that it specifically happened to. Right. But, you know, saying this out loud, I'm realizing I'm actually giving him too much credit because the whole thing ultimately just crests on, well, this involves property that the government took. (laughs) And so, so it's, it's just, it's all it's just property, property rights. rights. That's all it ever is. The rest of the episode, he makes the usual conservative argument of, look, nobody alive owned a slave. Uh, nobody alive is a slave. So, etc., etc. Did you know that there, I was waiting for this one, but... Did, I, I, oh, I yeah. was wondering if he was going to go into this terrain, and I was not disappointed about Like, did you know that uh, slavery has actually existed? The United States didn't invent slavery. In fact, slavery it existed, existed in many cultures. It existed in Africa, it's not too. not just white people so who did it. It existed <laughs> in Africa. 
Africa. So there, so there. He'll kind of throw a lot of stuff at the wall and see what sticks. In- you know, in- including, you- including, you know, asking for reparations is tribalism because in a way you're reifying race. You're thinking of yourself as black or indigenous or this or that when you should actually be thinking of yourself as American because we're all, we're all American. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is such a thing as like a left case against reparations, but the arguments people who belong in that camp tend to make is just, yes, there have been injustices that have been done, but let's just have wholesale redistribution and to create an equal society yeah, let's just create an equal society and in particular let's redistribute wealth but what Pendulet is saying is you know redistribution to members of individual groups is bad so let's just not have any redistribution at all well late in the episode they say that it's opening a can of worms you know if you give reparations to black people well then indigenous people will want it then i don't know uh the descendants of irish well, immigrants they, will want yeah, it and then stuff, well, what about like the irish or germans or whatever and it's like i don't think that there's is there a vocal chorus of like well there would be (laughs) (laughs) or i guess that's the argument Yeah, gee, I wonder, I wonder if Pendulette has seen the Columbus Day episode of The Sopranos. I wonder what he makes of that. There'd be a vocal <laughs> contingent of German Republicans who said, well, we were discriminated against. And yeah, one conclusion to draw from this would be, well, institute social democracy. And another conclusion to draw is uh, every man to himself. <laughs> now, there's a really peculiar move that he does in this episode. And I feel like I almost kind of respected this because it just suggests that Pendulette, at this time anyway, this aired in, I guess, 2006, he he was so unable to resist his own reactionary instincts that he actually got a guy, he, he got some, you know, one of these random experts who's just some, you know, random guy with a bookshelf behind him and like a Civil War musket on the mantelpiece or something, who he uses to ventriloquize the argument for not giving Japanese Americans who were interned any kind of, you know, reparations or apology. And it's actually that uh, actually they were their ranks were crawling with spies. <laughs> and he just puts this in the episode. Pen though distances himself from that guy. I that, just that think, guy's supposed to be more extreme. No, than I Penn. know. I just I'm a little confused as to why it was included. This crank was included at all. But. It ruptures the typical format of the show because <laughs> typically when you see a guy like that, you're supposed to be on his side. That's one strange part of the show. But actually, the weirdest. So <laughs> yeah, there's there, one more character there, we might want to there, talk. There's about. There's a character on this on this reparations <laughs> episode who is you know. We knew it going in. There would be at least one black man who was against reparations. And boy, howdy, this guy he found was a a former president of a local chapter of the NAACP. Former is a key word. <laughs> we don't we don't hear anything about that. Sure what happened with that? Uh, I'd love to know. But he apparently in the southern town where he lives, he marches the streets wearing a Confederate uniform and carrying a Confederate flag because he wants to reclaim the lost honor of the South. Well, And what's great about him is he's making like a property rights argument. He's like the North stole like the, 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 the South's property. Well, and he yes. And he, he also <laughs> says, listen, not all Southerners were slave owners you know the south gets some of the some of them were slaves in fact (laughs) 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 he says the the south gets painted with this broad brush and and i want to reclaim it and he's reclaiming it by walking around the south dressed as a literal confederate soldier which i feel like doesn't paint the image of the south that he thinks it does yeah, you can you, can, you, you know you can imagine a softer version of that argument where it's like yeah but i mean you know southern barbecue is pretty good i, I like <laughs> appalachian music you yeah. know? Like, <laughs> some of you were saying why the fuck don't penn and teller just grow a fucking dick between them and say global warming is all bullshit just say it we'd love to but we have a confession 
We don't know. Anyway, let's round things off with kind of a more general discussion about Penn and Teller bullshit. Because I don't know, uh, just a, a few things came to mind for me in reimmersing ourselves in this very specific sort of mid 2000 genre of libertarian contrarianism. I mean, something you pointed out while we were watching is when this kind of stuff was actually happening, it wasn't really encoded as right wing in the way that it's equivalent today probably is. Well, I mean, in the mid 2000s, there were things like, yeah, Hannity and Combs or that right wing daily show ripoff, the half hour news hour. You remember yeah, that? Yeah, I'm sure we all watched that. That <laughs> attempt at a conservative comedy show. Kirk Cameron movies. There are all sorts of entertainments that come presented as this is a right wing show. And ambiently, I never got that sense with Penn and Teller bullshit when it was on. I feel like it occupied more of the South Park space in the cultural ecosystem where it was, oh, they're uh, they're contrarians. They're uh, they're free thinkers. Which, you know, it's important to say, obviously, sections of the right today sort of still try to use that branding. But I feel like people are less convinced by it. So, you know, if you remember that insufferable piece a few years ago on the so-called intellectual dark web, where, you know, I think it included people like Ben Shapiro, people like, you know, people who were like obviously on the right. Uh, but the way it kind of framed those people was that they're, you know, non-tribal free thinkers or whatever. So, you know, this isn't left or right. This is just open-mindedness that's, you know, critical of conventional wisdom or whatever. But I, I still think it holds that uh, people are not as convinced by the act anymore, or or I should say fewer people are convinced by it. I had another response uh, that's related. I mean, this is partly anecdotal, but it seems to me that if, you know, if you are like Will and myself, kind of in your early 30s, you probably knew in high school, you know, if you grew up in, you know, North America anyway, you, you probably knew more people in high school. There were more libertarians than there were, you know, people who called themselves communists or, or socialists or anarchists. And I feel like that's probably not the case today. If you're, if you're in high school today, if you're a member of Gen Z, I feel like that's less likely. And I think this kind of speaks to what my working theory is for why there was so much kind of libertarian culture and this particular style of, of right-leaning uh, contrarianism that didn't declare itself as such was so in vogue in kind of the late 90s and early to mid-2000s. It's been a while since I've used this phrase in the pod, but uh, this is another one of those end of history things, you know, drink. I think there was a good sort of 25 years, possibly more, where it was just so widely believed, even by many people who didn't like this reality or purported at least to dissent from it. Liberal democratic capitalism is just the future now. I think that was sort of such a fixed point and was kind of considered so non-contentious, you know, uh, post-1989 or so, that a lot of the would-be dissidents ideologies that emerged and were in vogue. I mean, particularly among younger people who, you know, as the cliche goes, you know, often get into sort of rebellious ideologies. You know, if you're if you're going to get into those often, you do so as a teenager. And I think it's striking that certainly both the high schools I went to, there were way more people for whom the radical critique of society, such as they understood it, was found in libertarianism, libertarian adjacent things. Like the hipster position in 2008 when everyone was getting like, when everyone was getting so excited about Barack Obama was to be like, well, I'm more of a Ron Paul kind of guy. And Ron Paul was somebody who, at least everybody I knew who was into Ron Paul, you know, minus a few like U of T campus conservatives, did, they didn't understand him to be like a right wing figure. He was because he was pro weed for weed, and he was probably against <laughs> the Iraq War, right? Probably an isolationist in some way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know that for sure, but I think that's probably a, a safe bet. Now to close things out, there was one other thing that came to mind watching this, which is just how actually indistinguishable beyond the level of presentation this street 
streak of sort of libertarian contrarianism really is from just traditional conservatism. Like the differences do exist, but they're so often just a matter of affect rather than intellectual substance. It's about how you package them and how you talk and whether you're sort of a gruff, self-described maverick free thinker like Penn Jillette or whether you're just a, you know, a bow tie guy who works for the Cato Institute. But all the arguments are just really the same arguments you find in conservatism today. They're the same arguments that you found in conservatism, I would say roughly since Edmund Burke wrote his Reflections on the Revolution in France. And I want to go out just by uh, bringing something up on the pod that I think is interesting and has been a useful reference point to me for some time. And this is a 1991 book by Albert O. Hirschman. It's called The Rhetoric of Reaction. Uh, It's a very influential book and I think very neatly kind of lays out what the essence of the reactionary impulse, where it's really rooted. Hirschman was interested in how conservatives make arguments, and he basically laid out three categories of conservative arguments that he called perversity, futility, and jeopardy. And these are different, but they're all also kind of the same thing. So the perversity thesis is basically the idea that if you try to make any kind of progressive change, the the opposite thing is going to happen. So let's say you try to fight poverty with a welfare program. Well, what you don't realize is that your do-gooderism is actually keeping people in poverty because you're creating a disincentive to work. That would just be one version of the argument. The futility thesis is basically, I mean, it's right there in the title. It's basically like you can't actually change things. There are certain fixed rules for how things are. Yeah, the world can be a shitty place, but that's just kind of a given. You find the futility thesis a lot of the time in sort of uh, libertarian arguments around economics, like if you remember well, during the pandemic, I debated that guy from a East Coast Canadian liberal think tank. People can find that on YouTube somewhere. I forget the fellow's name, but it was uh, the Institute for Policy Studies. I think he was the executive director. But his whole kind of response in, in our debate about you know capitalism versus socialism really came down to you know none of the stuff that you're proposing is actually possible. Like oh, well, worker-controlled firms not possible. You know, it, it was just all that kind of stuff. So that's the futility thesis. And then finally, we have the Jeopardy thesis, which is that if you try to make some kind of uh, change or, or reform in a progressive direction, it will inevitably undermine some other, you know, cherished freedom. It will destroy something else. So all progress is actually an act of destruction. Now, I encountered the Hirschman book a few years ago, and once you read it, you will just start to see futility, perversity, and jeopardy in everything. You realize that whether you're listening to Jordan Peterson or reading Edmund Burke or watching an episode of Penn & Teller bullshit, there is a deep structure to conservative arguments. And it's basically been the same thing for 250 years or more. Last star, exploding 